Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is in you that we find our hope for our future, that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to give us life, that we may love your righteousness and live righteously in him. Help us to cling to this hope and let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be only acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. A question that has haunted humanity since the beginning of time, that modern and ancient philosophers alike have attempted to come up with decent answers for. And if you're a modern like me, if you Google, you find as many answers as you can possibly imagine to this question. Now, not only philosophers weigh in, but psychologists as well, and others. That question, of course, is what is the meaning of life? The author of Ecclesiastes, who calls himself the preacher, wrestles with this question. Wrestles with the question of what is life and what are we here for? But in order to understand this whole book of Ecclesiastes, you have to go to the very beginning and pay close attention. Because if you blink, you'll miss the entire setup for the rest of the book. The author asks, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, why are we here? This is that central struggle for the author. And if if you notice this coming week on your Abide with Christ bookmarks for the month, the readings for the next two weeks, in fact, are the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Because this little gem of a book, the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, wrestles with the same things that we so often wrestle with this day. Where do we find meaning? In this life, the author who is assumed to be Solomon, King David's son, has tried many things. He's tried many things, including things which we might have been suggested as modern solutions. Delicious food brings meaning, perhaps, or the storing up of money, or entertainment, or sex. Perhaps one of these, he thinks, might bring 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 meaning to his life. But those who are in Christ know that these are not the answer, and he, in fact, says that these are vanity of vanities. They bring no meaning to his life. Binging on food or storing up money brings nothing but more hunger, and to have your money, as Christ says, eaten by moths and rusted away. Entertainment brings nothing, nor does going from one person to another bring any sort of comfort in this life. As Solomon concludes, these are vanities of vanities. And he wonders here in our passage this morning what this toil and work is for. And perhaps he forgot or is not yet quite ready to get back to Genesis 3 which tells us not necessarily what the toil is for, 
but why work and life seem to be a toil? For work was not meant to be a toil. Work was meant to glorify God, to, to subdue the earth. But in the fall, man was cursed with work as a toil. In the fall, thistles and thorns came to make work no longer pleasurable, no longer the joy that it was supposed to be, but hard. And so that answers the beginning of this question, which he asks this morning in our reading from Ecclesiastes. But it goes on as sort of a typical response to the questions for the preacher. He starts with the hard subjects. He starts with the coming of death, for death comes for all. And he recognizes this. I took an ethics class several years ago. It was a medical ethics class of all things. And although the professor and I almost never agreed on any of the more interesting controversial subjects, it was a good class. And I think we enjoyed learning and discussing our disagreements together. But someone in the class made a really fascinating observation where 30 years ago or 40 years ago, the conversation of sex was taboo in our American culture. Now we talk about that as easily as if we are getting a sandwich. However, death, we tend to shy away from. Death, we do not like to talk about. <clears throat> and the author touches on that. That seems to be a universal throughout the history of mankind, throughout the history of humanity. And the author says, well, there is hope as long as we live. And he makes an interesting comparison that would be lost on us. Well, we would say, yes, of course, you'd rather be a, dead, a live dog than a dead lion. But this is a much stronger statement than you think. A dog in the culture was a gross thing. It was not the cute little things which we like to have around our house to pet and bring us comfort when we're frustrated. It was not man's best friend, but they were kind of sneered at in street dogs, in a sense. A lion, on the other hand, was like the lion of Judah, strong and mighty. But the author says, no, it's better to be a live dog. It's better to be a lowly street dog than a lion who no longer lives. Death, he says, has no hope. The dead, he says, are forgotten. And of course, the irony is that if, this, if, in fact, this is written by Solomon, which seems to be a reasonable conclusion to make, he was not forgotten. For we remember his wisdom that comes from the Lord, as well as his folly of having numerous concubines and other things. Solomon was not forgotten in his death, but remembered but likewise for those of us who are in Christ are not forgotten. For yes, it seems as though this darkness comes for us all, but for those who are in Christ, there is a greater hope than what Solomon sees so far in this passage. First, those are who are in Christ are not ever forgotten by God. God remembers you in the valleys and in the great days. God remembers you in the darkness and the sunshine. But likewise, 
If we are in Christ, if you are in Christ, the church does not forget you. Rather, we are bound to our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the ages. We are bound in Christ to the saints of old, to the saints who have long since gone. But likewise, we are bound to the saints that are yet to come. Your hope, our hope, is becoming alive in Christ. For in this day, we are bound to his death. Therefore, we die to sins and live to Christ. The Westminster Shorter Catechism starts with a great question along the same lines as what our dear author wrestles with through the book of Ecclesiastes. The confession starts with what is the chief end of man? Perhaps you know this question and you know the answer which is about to come. Which is the chief end of man, the chief end of humanity, is that he or she shall glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the preacher's response is similar to this. He says, go and enjoy life, therefore. And it's good advice as long as it's done under one who is justified. And he gets at that. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved of what you do. If we enjoy our food and our drink, if we live in comfort, if we're in Christ, we use those things to glorify God. We share meals with loved ones. We show hospitality to strangers. We, show, we drink with them and enjoy their company. And we take comfort and comfort those. But these can also become false gods. My wife really wanted me to share a story about a burrito. And she's smiling because I'm about to share a story about said burrito. About 10 minutes from our, her house, her apartment in Phoenix, was a little Mexican restaurant that had very good burritos. And I confess they are very good burritos. But now for her, they've become the burritos by which every other burrito is compared to. <laughs> Including the burritos from that burrito restaurant, and if they're not quite perfect, there's a bit of disappointment. Now, I don't think Julie actually idolizes these burritos, although maybe just a little bit. We can take something really good that God has given us to enjoy and turn it into a God. We can turn a delicious, amazing burrito. So even when we have another equally good burrito, it's not quite the same. We think, this just isn't good. And we don't enjoy the good gift that God has given us. We can turn all kinds of good gifts into bad gifts because we approach them incorrectly. For me, now that I've sufficiently embarrassed Julie, will embarrass myself. For me, 
A more serious one was for a while I turned the idea of marriage into a god. This, of course, was well before I even knew that Julie existed. But I thought, if God truly loves me, he'll send me a wonderful wife. I didn't actually probably articulate it in that way, but deep down, subconsciously, I felt that way until I had coffee with a friend and he kind of reminded me how we can make good things into little gods. How we can make good things and disorient how good they are for our own pleasure. And for me, it was the idea of marriage. But once I reoriented it, once I realized that this could be a good thing if the Lord blesses me with it, but it is equally good if the Lord calls me to celibacy. Either were good and beautiful. It was then that I recognized what Solomon or the preacher was trying to get at. Enjoy your life with your wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Enjoy that good gift. Enjoy it deeply. But recognize that it is just that. It is a gift from God. Also recognize that this, just because marriage for most people is normative, It is not the only way to live. Even within the Anglican tradition, we can think of easily at least three men who did incredible things to the glory of God that never married or married very late in life in one case. Charles Simeon, a great preacher, preached the gospel with fervency at a time that it was resisted in the kingdom of England, and he never married. C.S. Lewis, the great apologist, married very late in life and only so that his wife could get what would be the equivalent of a green card. And then, of course, fell in love with her, as many of us know the story. But marriage for him was not something he needed. John Stott, the great 20th century theologian, never married and served the Lord with fervency. If that is the blessing, we enjoy that blessing and learn to love one another all the better through it. But it is a blessing and a gift of thankfulness. We need not turn it into a God. We need not turn any good gift into a God, but recognize it simply as good gifts and enjoy them because the Lord has given them to us. Enjoy them and bless them. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. The final verse of this chapter does not deny, the, or the final verse of our reading this morning, does not deny the afterlife. But the preacher cannot get his mind around how there could possibly be anything beyond this. And he makes death into a meaningless thing, at least for this part of the passage. The the preacher does not quite see the end as we get to know it. But it is rather a a, a millennium later that God reveals to St. John what the end 
looks like. And this, of course, fits into the end of Ecclesiastes, which we'll get to in just a moment. St. John writes as it was revealed to him, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be my people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their own eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, and for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trust, a trustworthy saying. He said to me, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give a spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and sexual immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portions will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, as is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels, the one who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And I saw no temple in that city, for the temple of the Lamb of God, the Almighty and the Lamb, is the Lord of God and the Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light all nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut. There will be no night there, and they will, bring into its, they will bring into its glory the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of that river, the tree of life with its twelve kind of fruit, yielding each fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their forehead and the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever. And so, in the wrestling with what this life means, the preacher, as he calls, does not yet see what will come, but he does see that death comes. And he does see that it is hard 
to understand. But for those of us who are in Christ, have hope. We do not say that there's no knowledge or wisdom in Shoal, but we look forward to the recreation of the heavens and the earth. Now, for those of you who want to read through all of Ecclesiastes, bear the question in mind as you make your way through each, question, each chapter. Bear that question in mind that started it. What does man gain by all toil which he has under the sun? And then hold steady, for it's not till the last two verses that we get an answer. The last two verses of Ecclesiastes read, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In other words, God will judge us will judge the good and the bad. Your life will not be forgotten. The actions of our lives will not be forgotten, but rather they will be revealed on the last day. But we are given hope. If it feels as though the heaviness of that statement is too much, our hope is in Christ. His righteousness has been given for your sinfulness. His righteousness has been put upon you so that you and I can look forward to that coming of that great new city. In the end, the point of Ecclesiastes is to show the vanity of worldliness. And for us who are in Christ, it calls us beyond this vanity to live for Christ's righteousness, to live in Christ's righteousness. For in living in Christ, Christ has put away death. Death's dominion is no more. Living in Christ gives life that meaning which we so long for, that meaning which is made, is made possible, which is so beautifully summarized in the Westminster Catechism. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost.